following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Our text for this morning is going to come from Galatians chapter 3. We are going to begin our time this morning with verse 19 and I'm going to read our text for us this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and and then we're going to see what God has for us. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Listen and hear the word of the Lord this morning. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Let me pray for us and we'll begin this morning. Father, we thank you again for the richness of the privilege we have to be here, to hear your word read, or to hear your word read in our own language with freedom and no fear, thinking about all of our brothers and sisters around the world who have to gather in secret places and dark places to do the very thing that we're so able to do so freely. Thank you for that. Let us not this morning take that for granted. And, and in that this morning, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work through your imperishable and perfect word to, to give us life, to give us life abundantly. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. Is there anyone in the room this morning who would like to be labeled as legalistic? I mean, is there anyone who just simply wants to be called a legalist? You want that brand upon you. There's few things that are as frustrating as are angering and and as are potentially damaging to relationships in the church than to call someone legalistic. But... Before we begin to throw that word around too freely, we need to take a few minutes to try to understand what it actually means to be legalistic. What is it that we're actually saying when we say someone or a church is legalistic? Let's start by what we should not mean. Legalism is not obedience to God and His commands. Got that? Legalism is not learning to obey all that God has commanded us to do. Legalism is not the pursuit of holiness and joy in Christ. Legalism is not striving to please God and to glorify God in all that we do. Legalism is not, 
as the Bible would say, being zealous in our good works and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Those things are not legalistic. And a person or a church is not legalistic for living those things out. So what is legalism? What does it actually mean to be legalistic? It's, it's quite a nuanced label. There really isn't a simple definition of what it means because any simple definition of what it means to be legalistic leaves something out, which is why I appreciate Dan Doriani. He's a pastor in St. Louis and a professor at Covenant Seminary. He decided to try to capture the nuances of legalism by defining it in three classes. It's fun. Listen to this. Doriani says that class one legalists, right, you ready? Class one legalists, they believe that they can do something to earn God's favor and even obtain salvation. So this is what Paul has somewhat been referencing already in Galatians that we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and already in chapter 3. One aspect of legalism is to believe that we can somehow earn or merit what Paul has been talking about as the inheritance, the promise that God has made to his people to be saved, to be redeemed, to be made right in his eyes by grace. To believe that we can do anything to earn that is to be a class one legalist. He also says, though, that class two legalists, class two legalists require other believers to submit to man-made commandments as if they were actually God's law. Class two legalists add laws to laws. Class two legalists tend to take their preferences for how certain things could be done and make them principles by which everyone else must live and obey by. Got it? Class two legalists like to say you can't when God very clearly in his scripture says you can. Now Paul is going to deal specifically with class two legalists when we get to chapter five and chapter six. There are going to be a lot of questions that are still swirling after this morning. Trust me, Paul is going to get there, okay? We're not done. Class three. There's a third class of legalists. Class three legalists tend to obey God and do good in order to retain God's favor. Now, did you catch the difference between a class one legalist and a class three legalist? Class one legalist, Doriani said, obey, perform to merit God's favor. Class three legalists obey, do good, perform to maintain God's favor. Class three legalists tend to live as if God's daily favor, God's daily love for them depends on how well they perform for him that day. When they have a bad day and something goes wrong, the thoughts begin to race through the mind. What did I do to deserve this? Is God punishing me for something now? Class three legalism is ultimately what's at the heart of what Paul's been getting after specifically in the letter he's writing to the churches that we have called before already performance-based Christianity. It's to believe that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that in the reception of God's salvation and the presence of God's Holy Spirit in your heart, now you have to live well enough to maintain the salvation that God has already given you. God saved me by his grace through faith in Christ. God has given me a new heart. He's given me his very spirit. Now I have no reason not to obey. And if I can't obey well enough, I might very well lose the salvation God's freely given me. This class three legalism, this performance-based Christianity is a deception 
that lies deep in the heart, not only of God's people then, but God's people now. Paul has been trying to be very clear. If in any way our salvation or God's daily affection and favor for us is based in any way upon our performance for him, then it's no longer a promise that comes by grace. It's no longer gospel. And so Paul has been hammering over and over and over again. God's promise of salvation, God's promise of affection for you and favor for you is not dependent in any way on your performance for him. That's the teaching that had taken root at the heart of the churches in Galatia. Your obedience to God ensured your standing before him. Your daily, not just eternal standing before God, but your daily standing before God was based entirely upon how well you performed for God in your obedience, in particular to his law that particular day. So, as Paul has been continuing to try to build this argument and deconstruct that deception that is shaking the foundation of the assurance and the confidence of God's people, he gets to a place in the argument now where he begins to answer some questions that were probably being whispered amongst the churches by these teachers that had come in and some natural rhetorical questions that would grow in the mind as you listened. If the promise comes by grace, if our salvation and God's affection and favor for us comes by grace through faith in Christ and is owing nothing to what we do in any way to earn it at all, then why 430 years later after the promise did God give the law? If the law and our obedience to it in no way supplements what God did for us in Christ to ensure our right standing before him, then why all the commandments? Why the Big Ten? And forget the Big Ten. Why the hundreds of commandments that litter the entire Old Testament and now even in the New Testament? Why all the ceremonies to follow? Why all the sacrifices to make? If keeping them does not enhance my standing before God and my look in God's eyes, then why did God give them? These Judaizers would have been going through the churches saying, why don't you ask Paul that? Why don't you, why don't you ask him to answer that question? They weren't denying that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. They, they worshiped God in Christ. They celebrated the cross and the resurrection. But now they were saying that to be sure of God's favor for you now and for eternity, it really depended on how well you obeyed his law. Why don't you ask Paul to deal with that? And the reality of it is, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, you, you and I, we wrestle with the same questions. I mean, our whole world... For the majority of our days on this earth, most environments that we find ourselves in, our standing in those environments is based on how well we perform. You get a job. You have a job review. You keep your job based, what? Not on the grace of the employer, but on how well you perform. I mean, the business itself. It's livelihood, it's stability, it's built on how well it can perform. Forget work, how about school? 18 years of our lives we spend in school, not counting college. Do well, follow the rules, or else what? You're out. If you don't get the grades and if you can't follow the rules, you can't stay. Sports, it's performance. Everything about the world that we live in tells us our stability and our security is based on how well we perform. And that environment leaves us, even on this side of the cross, in a dangerously unhealthy relationship with the commands of God in the Bible. 
When we breathe in the air of performance and we tend to then relate to God in that same way, we find ourselves in a perilous position of having a very unhealthy relationship with the law. Some of us will find ourselves obsessing over the law, living and waking day in and day out. How well am I doing this? Am I keeping this? Is he still going to like me? Am I on eggshells with God based on this? And we teeter daily between security and insecurity, and all of it's based on how well we perform. One theologian calls it the insecurity of daisy theology. Today he loves me, tomorrow he loves me not. And we pluck the petals off every day. We find ourselves excessively self-centered in this obsession with the law because all we can focus on again is ourselves and how well we're doing. It's an unhealthy relationship with God's word and with God's commands. But there's another side of it too. Not only can we find ourselves sometimes indifferent to it, and let's just for the sake of that call that religion, that performance reality. The other side of it is absolute indifference to what God says and what God commands. We can be obsessed. We can be indifferent. Neither is healthy and neither, Paul is going to argue, is the way that God intended to lead us to life. What Paul intends for God's people this morning is to help change the way we relate to God's law. The way that we understand the function of God's law in particular and the nature of our salvation. And Paul's going to do it through asking and answering two questions. You heard him as we read the text. Why the law? And is the law contrary to God's promises? So last week, Paul argued that the law didn't change or annul or supplement God's promise of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. When the law came 430 years later, it didn't cancel out grace. That's what it didn't do. The law didn't cancel out grace. So what does it do? That's where Paul's going now. And there are a number of things. The nuanced use of the law by God in his intentions for his people. There's a lot of different ways to understand it. But Paul has one way in particular that he's trying to get God's people to relate to the law in this argument. And this is the chief point Paul is trying to make. So if you catch this sentence and you end up wandering off, hopefully this sentence will stick with you. Paul's chief intention in trying to change the way we relate as God's people to his words of command is simply this. God always intended for the law to make us desperate for his grace. There's a number of nuanced uses that God has for his commands in the Bible. The chief argument that Paul is making in this part of Scripture is that God has always intended for his law to make us desperate for his grace. How does he do that? Well, listen to him. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. God added the law because of transgressions. And nearly every aspect of that statement is important in understanding the argument that Paul is making and that the law was intended to make us desperate for grace. So, all right, so let's start by understanding what a transgression is, right? What is a transgression? Transgression simply means the crossing of an established boundary. That's what it means. It means the line says, don't step over there. And a transgression is going, well, that rule doesn't apply to me. And I step over the line. It means the crossing of an established boundary. Paul is saying, God did not give the law in response to our crossing over established boundaries. Paul didn't, Paul's saying God didn't give the law because he was finally fed up with all of his people's sins. So 430 years later, he decides to give them rules. 
No, Paul is saying that the stepping over of boundaries, the sin, the transgressions, were the reason that the law was actually given. God didn't give the law as a means for you and I to find a way to establish ourselves and establish our sense of righteousness before him. He gave us the law to expose to us, to clarify for us the reality of our sinfulness. When the law is added because of our transgressions, what it's doing is it's removing any doubt that we could have as to what God's good boundaries for our good and his glory really are. It's removing the fog so that now we can see what it actually is to transgress them. It's exposing the reality of our sinfulness. There are parallel passages to this all along, and I've been trying to resist them. Because we could go to the book of Romans and go through Romans 4 and 5, and we could do this exact same thing over again. So I'm trying to keep it a sermon about Galatians. But I can't help but go to Romans a little bit because you got to see. This has been Paul's point all along. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul's going to amplify this statement. And Paul's going to say the law came to actually increase the trespass. So the law comes to reveal the good boundaries that God lays out for his people, but it also reveals the hidden reality of our rebellion and distrust because you can't see the rebellion and the distrust of God's promises exposed until the boundaries made clear. Does that make sense? Rebellion and distrust are hidden until there's a boundary for which you can cross. So Paul says that God gave the law to actually increase the trespasses because by seeing the boundaries that God lays out, our rebellion and our distrust is exposed as we see the boundary and want to cross it. The law invites us to cross the line. Paul's going to say it again in Romans chapter 7. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, listen to what he says, were aroused by the law. They were at work in our body to bear fruit for death. So not only are our sinful inclinations exposed by God giving the law, not only does that rebellion and distrust become seen, it actually stirs up in us the desire to cross the line. It actually makes us want to take the step over. It incites, it arouses the transgressions in our heart. Everybody loves God until God tells us something to do. You realize that, right? Every parent and every child have a wonderful relationship until some parent draws a line. It's the same way with God. We all love God until he says, don't do this. Or until he says, do this. Either way, when he tells us what not to do or he tells us what to do, it's ultimately for our good and his glory. We don't like it. Who are you to tell me what to do? Paul is saying this is how God intended actually to use the law. Luther, let's listen to Luther. Luther said the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, his blindness, his misery, his wickedness, his ignorance, his hate and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. If it had not been for the law, Paul said, I wouldn't have known what sin was. If it hadn't have been for the law, if the boundaries had not been made clear, I wouldn't have known what transgression was. See, the law was never meant to show us how holy we actually are. It was always meant by God to expose to us in the clearest and most personal of ways how sinful we really are. 
The law helps us to see ourselves realistically, maybe for the first time. It's much like an MRI or a CAT scan. An MRI doesn't cause illness or cancer. An MRI doesn't cure it either. An MRI simply exposes what's already there. You make sense? This is what's happening with the law. It can't make us healthy. Paul's going to argue it was never intended by God to give us life. It was never intended to be a means by which we could earn or justify ourselves. It could never be a means in God's purposes for us to live. Look at what he says in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it was never intended by God to be a means for us to live. So every day when we wake up believing the lie that real life and real security and real assurance and real righteousness before God is based on how well we perform for him, we're buying the lie. We're waking up and living on the treadmill of performance. It's that Groundhog's Day over and over and over again. God never intended for the law. God never intended for our performance to be the way that we would find life. It had a different purpose. Calvin would say that the law was given in order to make transgressions obvious. That's what we've already seen. And in this way, it would compel us to acknowledge our guilt. As we would see just how sinful we are, we would be able to come to the place to own the fact that we're simply that sinful. But I love how Paul said when he said it was added because of transgressions, right? That word added is important too. That word added literally means to come into something, to come in by a side way, by a side road, right? It's not the highway, it's the on-ramp. The law feeds into the promise that God had made. It doesn't take us to the destination, it doesn't take us to the inheritance, it takes us on to the way for the inheritance. The law reveals our sin. The more we see our sin, the more we see our need for a Savior, The law doesn't take us to life, but it takes us to the road that takes us to salvation. One commentator would say that God didn't interrupt his promises with the law, but God laid his law alongside his promises until the day of the promised offspring, that is Christ. So until Jesus fulfilled the purpose for the law, God laid the law alongside to take us along the way to the promise. So when you and I live and wake up thinking that our performance is what takes us to God's affection, it's what takes us to right standing before God, it's what takes us to his approval and that inheritance. That's what was happening here in the Galatian church. Paul was crying out, no, no, no. The law shows you, it takes you to your need for the one who takes you to that. The law shows you how desperately you need someone else to do for you what you can never do for yourself. It's the on-ramp. It takes you to the one who takes you to the promise. I can't remember if it was John Stott or if it was Martin Lloyd-Jones. I should have written it down. But they'll try to wrap this up this way. The purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off of man's respectability. Did you catch that? Like popping the hood on a car. You just got to open that thing up to see why it's smoking. The law was intended by God to, to pop the hood and show our lack of respectability and to disclose what we're really like underneath. 
sinful and rebellious and guilty under the judgment of God and helpless to save ourselves. Friends, that's why we can never stop talking about transgression. It's why it does us no good to try to redefine sin, come up with other ways to make it sound better than it actually is. It's why it never does us any good to try to get around sin, to not talk about sin, to not be able to own the reality of our sin. The law in this sense still serves us even now on this side of a cross to show us just how left to ourselves sinful we really are. It exposes the reality of our hearts. Friends, the gospel is underestimated and undervalued in the church simply because the devil has convinced us that we don't really need it. That we're really not all that bad. That we can find the acceptance and the favor and the joy of God and salvation through Christ by getting around and not having to deal with how desperately we need it. We all want the inheritance. We all want the blessing without dealing with the reality of the seriousness of our sin. The law helps us to see just how profoundly sinful we are. Because until we really see how desperately we need a Savior, the message of the gospel and the message of salvation will never be as liberating as God intends it to be. God's purpose for the law, Paul is trying to argue, was never to replace his promise, never to replace his grace, but to make his people desperately, desperately craving for the promise of his grace. When we see ourselves, we become desperate for God's grace. Now, there was something I skipped in chapter 2 because I was thinking about it in terms of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And I want to go back to it because I think Paul talks about something in chapter 2 that helps illustrate the argument he's trying to make here in chapter 3. Because remember, he's writing one letter. He wasn't stopping and pausing and walking away. He's making one big argument. So you can kind of have to see how it all fits. So look back at chapter 2 and verses 18 and 19. We didn't really talk about these when we went through chapter 2. And I was thinking about that in relation to this part that he's making. Paul said, if I rebuild what I tore down, he's talking about the law. These Judaizers were coming into these churches saying, Paul has completely thrown out the law of God. He's completely tore the law down. He's dismissing it altogether for this whole newfangled idea of grace. Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God, right? Paul is trying to show that God never intended for the law to be the means by which we earned righteousness or salvation. It was intended by God to be the means by which we understood our desperation for his grace. Before Paul was saved by the grace of God through Christ, he sought to earn his righteousness before God by his obedience to the law. And we know from who Paul is and what we've learned about Paul, he was better at it than any of us in this room. Yet, he says, through all of those efforts, through all of his intentionality, through all of his sincerity, through all of his seriousness, through all of his effort to perform by keeping the law of God, it actually served to help him die to that law as a means of righteousness because he saw that he could never do it the way that God intended. He could never keep it perfectly, he could never keep it fully, and he could never do it consistently. I died to the law through the law the law helped me to die to it as a means of righteousness before God. God intends for that law to make us desperate for his grace. 
He meant it to be the means by which we would die to it as a sense of performance and righteousness that we might live to him. Let me try to give you an example of what this means. I was trying to figure out how I can make it more practical now because even that's kind of hard to get your head around. I'll I'll do it this way. Every single young man growing up, almost, I'll say 90% of young boys growing up, and I put myself in this category, at some point in their childhood believed that they would spend the rest of their adult life playing sports for a living. Basketball, football, baseball, soccer, tennis, golf, doesn't matter. We all believe we had within us the capacity to be a professional athlete. Some were gifted with more measure of athleticism and skill than others. And those that were gifted with more measure of athleticism and skill than others made it further along in the journey. But yet, in my world that I came from, in the sport of soccer, so few a percentage of people actually go on to play what we actually call professional soccer that it is by that very sport that we die to the reality of it ever being the way we're going to live. Soccer showed me as I got older that it was never going to actually be the way that I was going to live. I died to it through it. It showed me it wasn't going to be the means by which I would make my living. Paul is saying that the law serves this way. Through trying to build our righteousness by our obedience and performance for God, it actually enables us to die to it as a means for that when we realize we can never do it. And in realizing we can never do it, we realize how desperate we are for God to do by his grace what we can never do for ourselves. The law was meant to make you desperate for grace. One writer said, not until the law has bruised and smitten you will you admit your need of the gospel to bind up your wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned you Will you pine for Christ to set you free? Not until the law has condemned you and killed you will you call upon Christ for justification in life. Not until the law has driven you to despair of yourself will you ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled you even to the point of hell will you turn to the gospel to raise you to heaven. The scripture imprisoned you and limited your options and locked you into yourself and all of your weakness and all of your failure with inescapable evidences of what you're really made of so that as you begin to see it, you realize To yourself, no one can escape your sin. That's why Paul will go on to say in the next verse, the scripture imprisoned everything to sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believed. And before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Do you see what he's trying to say? The law, again, was never meant to be a ladder by which you climbed up to the lap of God and made yourself right before him. It was meant to be a jailer that kept you in. It was meant to lock you up and guard you, hem you in, put a gate around you, tie you up, imprison you so that you would know you're not free. You're shackled by your sin. And even in that, there's kindness. Even in that, there's grace. And it would keep you there. Until the promise of salvation may be fulfilled in Christ. John Piper, let him try to help us here. Piper said, The law increases transgressions and jails people in their sin, not because it requires imperfect people to merit God's favor, but because it requires proud and independent people to humble themselves and depend upon God's transforming mercy. See, God imprisoned you by the scriptures 
so that you might not try to read the law with confidence in what you can do, but it would imprison you in your own inability. And again, you would find yourself desperate, sensing your need for salvation. The law doesn't replace the promise of grace. It actually serves the promise of grace because it makes us desperate for grace. And then Paul's going to say, in God's redemptive hands, it takes us to Christ. This is what the law does. Again, let's go to Luther. It's Reformation 500 year. Luther said the law, with its function, it, doesn't, it does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels you to the promise of grace and makes grace sweet and desirable. Therefore, you can't get rid of the law, but you have to see its true function and use. Namely, that it's a most useful servant to impel you to Jesus for its function and its use is to not only disclose the sin and wrath of God, that's what we saw when it was added because of transgression, it exposes our sin, it exposes our transgression, but it also drives us to Christ. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, maybe even worn down so that they may long for grace and for the blessed offspring who has come. Paul said the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul, Luther is saying something that Paul was saying here because in this day and age, and Paul was writing this, a, a guardian would be some part of a, a wealthy Greek family. It was usually a slave, most often a slave, who was uneducated, and his entire job was to escort the children around, take them to their tutors where they needed to go. It was a disciplinarian in the place of the father. The father had his intentions, had his wishes for the children, and it was the guardian who made sure those intentions were carried out. He would follow the children around, discipline them for what they did, tell them what they were expected to do, escort them where they needed to go up until the point, the time when they would take them to their father around age 16 and present them as adults, as children to their dad. Their main role was protection and discipline and, and, and escort. The guardian didn't teach the kids how to get better and better in order for dad to accept them. The law doesn't do that either. The guardian there was there to discipline them. It told the children what to do and what not to do and punished them for failing to do it. And Paul's saying, in a sense, the law serves in that way. But in God's redemptive plan, the law, like the guardian, was working itself out of a job. The law is meant to take us to Christ, through whom we have a new relationship with the Father, which is why Paul says in verse 25, but now that faith has come, you're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. You were imprisoned. You were under the discipline of the guardian. You were under the one who would treat you like a child, taking you until you grew up into the presence of the Father. But no longer. Because the fulfillment of the promise has come in Christ. The law imprisoned you, but Christ set you free. The law disciplined you until Jesus has come and made you children, made you sons. We get to sit on that next week. That changes everything. And so one writer will say only Christ 
can deliver us from the prison to which the curse of the law brings us. Why? Because he was made a curse for us. Only Christ can deliver us from the law's harsh discipline. Why? Because he makes us sons who obey out of love for the Father and are no longer naughty children needing tutors to punish them anymore. You need, as you read this, to hear how Paul reiterates over and over and over again the temporary nature of the law working and imprisoning us. In verse 19, Paul said it was until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In verse 23, he said, now before faith came. And then he said, in prison until the faith would be revealed. Verse 24, he says, the law is our guardian until Christ came. The argument he's making is simply this. When by the grace of God you believe upon Jesus as your king, as your savior, his righteousness is imputed to you, which means the law can no longer imprison you like that anymore. You are no longer imprisoned by the law. The law can no longer terrorize you with its threats of discipline anymore. Why? Because in the eyes of your father, you are hidden in the righteous robes of his son. In the eyes of the father, in Christ, you are now holy. So now, through the fullness of the promise, the law still serves us by revealing God's boundaries for our good and his glory. It still serves us by showing us and exposing our sinful tendencies and rebellion that's in our heart. And the more we see who we really are, the more it reveals that, that desire for rebellion and distrust that is inside of us, the more it then leads us out of desperation back to gratitude and grace that he's shown us in his son. That's why Paul would go on to say in Romans 5, not only did the law come to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, if you are a Christian and you're in this room this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, the argument that Paul is trying to take you to, and man, it's going to come to a great head next week. The argument that he is taking you to is that the fulfillment of the promise has come by God's grace through faith in Christ you can rest. Your transgressions, your sin, they don't have to weigh you down anymore. They don't have to be like that weight tied around your neck that would drown you in the water if someone threw you over. You don't have to live in obsession about your transgressions anymore and whether or not they're shaking the foundation of which God loves you and approves of you. In fact, in fact, as the law shows you your transgressions, on this side of the cross, the law serves as a mean to give you more of Christ. The law actually can serve you to give you more of Christ, to bring you more of Him. Now, when you recognize the reality of what's in your heart, that you don't simply just have angry thoughts about other people, but that you are indeed in your heart a murderer, when you realize and can actually own the reality of your sinfulness, that you don't just simply have lustful thoughts about other people, that you are indeed an adulterer. Caught in the hamster wheel of performance, you find yourself trying to figure out, how can I do better? How can I try harder? If that's what you're thinking, you're still imprisoned. You're still allowing the law to imprison you. It's an unhealthy relationship with God's law. No, the gospel sets you free. The gospel frees you to say, yes, I am a murderer. 
And when you say, yes, I am a murderer and recognize the fullness of your sin in light of God's word, let that word escort you. Take you by the hand straight to Christ, the one who was labeled a murderer, the one who was labeled an adulterer, the one who was labeled guilty in your place so that by the grace of God through faith in him, you could be made righteous before God. When you allow the law to not only show you your sin, when you allow the law to not only show you the desperate needs you have for his grace, but you allow the law to escort you straight to the one who died in your place for your sin so that you can be made righteous in the eyes of God, you are experiencing the fullness of all that God intended for the law. Now, as his sons, and oh man, that's going to be fun next week. Now, as his children, we no longer try to obey the law out of some kind of fear of rejection or, or hope for salvation. We recognize and rest and live in the fact we've been saved by his grace according to his promise. Now, we come to God's law. We come to his do this, and we come to his don't do this, and we see them as his gracious word for our good and his glory. And out of a gratitude for what he's done, through his son to set us free and make us his own children, we want to obey him. We desire to obey him. We see the good in what he says and we want to please him and we want to be more like his son. The law becomes like a David said, honey to our lips. That's how it happens. Friends, the law of God was meant to magnify Jesus as the one who would be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of grace that God gave. See, even as you read your Old Testament now, and you come across the laws of God in the Old Testament, you come across the sacrifices that God required them to make for their sin, you realize that God, even in that, was revealing in the Old Testament through his law and what he established, the need for a Savior. You see that he was making his own people, even then, desperate for the grace that he had promised, that there was still a sacrifice that was yet to come. Friends, this morning, as we get to respond to God's word, we get to respond and remember with great joy and with great gratitude the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made in our place for our sin. We get to remember and we get to celebrate the fulfillment of the promise that God made, the one who fulfilled the law. And this week, every week, as we respond as family now, children of the living God by grace through faith in Christ, we get to celebrate in gratitude with joy what God's done for us through his son. And we get to do it when we receive communion. Friends, God never intended for you to base your relationship on him, with him on how well you perform for him. Friends, he accomplished everything for you through his son. Again, the question that he calls us to is, will we believe him? Do we believe it was sufficient enough even for me? I'm going to pray for us, and then we get a chance to respond. We're going to allow you a couple of minutes to reflect, to pray, to deal with God, to let him deal with your heart. And then for those who have placed their faith in Christ as their king and as their savior, we're going to respond by receiving communion together, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sin. And listen, friends, do it this morning with joy. Do it this morning with gratitude. Do it this morning remembering that Jesus was the one who fulfilled the promise of God and through him you've been set free from the imprisoning shackles of the law. That you're no longer a slave to your sin, but through Christ and in him you are a child of God. And our relationship to God's word and our relationship to God's commands changes because of the relationship that we have with him through his son. Friends, I'm going to pray for you and 
And then we get the privilege of responding together as a family. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that your word exposes to us our need for you. And we are so self-righteous. We can be so easily deceived into thinking we're not simply as needy and desperate as we really are. I thank you for your word that searches us, that exposes us, that lays us bare, or that makes us desperate for your grace. Lord, let that word that makes us desperate, Lord, just as you promised, not leave us there, but let it escort us to your son. Lord, we don't want to wallow there in our desperation, Lord. We want to be escorted by the hand in love to your son who has set us free, who's made us yours, and in whom we stand. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that miracle in every heart here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.